Hello and thank you for tuning in to the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Now, please welcome, all the way from their front living room, your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 38 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. You sound so happy. I am happy. <laughs> you okay? We got a good guest on today. Yep, so why don't you tell our listeners all about him? Well, his name is Stephen Spignessi. And he's written over 70 books. He's written one called Stephen King, American Master. And that is going to be released on October the 30th in America. Or thereabouts, isn't it? Yeah. Something like that. But we are also going to concentrate on a book that is coming out actually next April, but is available for pre-order now on Amazon Kindle. And that is The Big Book of UFO Facts, Figures and Truth. Please welcome to the show. Stephen Spignessi. Hi, Stephen. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You have to tell us more about this book, the big book of UFO facts, figures, and truth. (laughs) Sure. Actually, the book tries to be exactly what the subtitle says, which is a comprehensive examination. And I had been assembling material for years. And actually, this book is an expanded, updated edition of a book that I did Many years ago, we decided that it needed to be back in print because it's become a hotter topic. And I originally got into UFOs because my agent is an authority. His name is John White, and he's an authority on UFOs. And when he took me on as a client, I learned that he had been doing these seminars, these incredible seminars locally called the UFO Experience. And I was invited to one and I met all manner of people that are just really involved in the entire field. And that's what got me interested. And that's what uh, led me to write the original book. And now we're doing this brand new edition with a lot more material, as well as all the existing stuff from the first book, much of which I'm very, very proud of. I will get to the astronaut stuff, um, but I also have a section in there. Uh, celebrity UFO sightings. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) Oh, it certainly is. To hear high-profile, name-recognizability celebrities talking about their UFO experience, everybody from Jackie Gleason to John Lennon and Jimmy Carter. Another feature of the book that I'm very proud of is my detailed deconstruction of Project Blue Book. I went through 20 years of Project Blue Book sightings, and I discovered that there are 218 Project Blue Book sightings that were never identified by the U.S. government out of 12,618 UFO reports, which means the U.S. government was able to explain with certainty almost 12,000 UFO reports. There were 618 reports the government could not explain. And of those 618, I took the 218 that were made by pilots, military personnel, uh, astronauts, lawyers, radar operators, people for whom you would assign credibility if they told you Anything else? Yeah. 
anything else, advice, uh, you would take them at their word and you would assign them credibility. And yet, very often, if one of these people would mention a UFO sighting, I saw this. Oh, come on. And and suddenly – and I, I just couldn't cotton to that. And I said, no, that, that makes no sense. If I'm going to accept and believe something from an Army Air Force jet pilot, go through years of training, incredibly specific reporting and flying and experience in their career, and they tell me they see something, and I'm supposed to say, oh, no, you didn't. It's annoying because in a court of law, those same people would be treated as an expert witness. You're absolutely right. And that's the whole point of that section in the book, that these 218 reports and of the 618 reports that the U.S. government could not explain, I was able to. I mean, even those are people in ordinary life that you would say, well, why would they lie? I mean, if they saw something very, very specific, why would they make it up? But I said, no, I'm going to refine it even tighter. I'm going to go into people whose basic job is to observe and correctly report, and their careers bear enormous responsibility. Pilots have enormous responsibility. And so psychologically, these are the people we depend upon. And they're trained observers as well. They're exactly right. They're trained observers. So why would we disbelieve them if they say they saw something that sounds crazy? And yet it's not. Air Force lieutenants, Marine Corps technical sergeants, lawyers, radar operators, battalion communication, chief seamen, first class. Some of the people that I, that I uh, report their, their accounts in the book, a Navy commander, border patrolman. These are people who you dismiss. And so the Project Blue Book section of the book is great, great fun. And then we move on to um, the types of close encounters, uh, sightings by astronauts, the characteristics of different sightings, uh, misconceptions about reports, uh, interviews, an interview with – I interviewed Edgar Mitchell. Apollo 14 astronaut, 12th and on the moon, yeah. And, you know, these people have seen something that is obviously what many would call inexplicable. They're not hallucinating, right? They They are not making things up. They are seeing things. Now, personally, I have had a sighting. And in the early years of this project, that was even more of a an impetus for me to want to look more into the phenomenon and discover now you know the thing is when people talk about ufo sightings and they talk about there's there's this kind of preconceived notion that what we're talking about are alien craft yeah extraterrestrial craft. But the reality is that many UFO sightings may very well be top secret government craft that we simply have no knowledge of and are inexplicable when you see it from the ground, but are out there and are being worked on. However, there are, let's put it this way, there are also sightings of craft doing things that as far as we know, are impossible 
with today's technology. It's just not feasible that that could be happening with aircraft knowing what we know today. Um, so basically, Bill and I both wanted to take a very broad look at the experience, because that's what it's called today, the UFO experience, the UFO phenomenon, and pinpoint very, very specifically the reality that, hey, some of this stuff might be otherworldly. However, some of it may also be secret craft that no one really knows about. And so what we've done is we've tried to be true to the definition, to the acronym UFO, unidentified flying object. Unidentified is the key word there. And I know that what I saw, I don't know of aircraft technology that could do what I saw when I had my sighting back in 1984. And in fact, many of the reports, particularly from Project Blue Book, involve a common act by the craft, which is speeding off at unimaginable speed, uh, just pew, right off into the sky, and also winking out. Those are common. The experiencer will say, the, the craft simply flew off in a northwesterly direction at, it seemed like a thousand miles an hour, and then it blinked out, it winked out. And that speaks to my experience. So um, I know this is a long way around of explaining the book, but I wanted to make it clear that we did try to cover the possibilities that these were and are otherworldly, but then again, they may not be. You said that your personal experience is what sort of prompted you to do the investigating and to write the books in the first place. What It helped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what happened? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I, was, uh, I live in New Haven, Connecticut, and I was driving on a road called Route 1, which stretches from the tip of Maine all the way down to the bottom of Florida. And I was driving north. And I was stopped at a light. It was 9.45 a.m. on a weekday morning. It was sunny. And I was stopped at the light, and I was just looking up into the sky and ahead of me. And I saw a silver object moving from my right to my left field of vision. I did not think anything of it. Why? Because we are five minutes from a major airport. Tweed New Haven Airport. Um, so we are people in my area are used to seeing jets, planes, and so forth. So I didn't think anything of it until I actually kept my eyes focused on it, and it moved across my field of vision. And here's the fun part: it stopped. Really? Back. It backed up and winked out, disappeared. And the first thing I did was report it. Uh, we have a, um, a UFO group in New England, and I did file an official report. Um, and I told people about it. And so it was clearly something that – you know what the bottom line is, guys? It was it was unexplainable. It was unidentified. It was inexplicable. Yeah. I don't know what I saw. Was I seeing 
floaters in front of my eyes? Was I, was I, I don't know what I saw. All I know is what I saw, <laughs> which was a silver object, oval shaped, moving across the sky, stopping, backing up, and then disappearing. Yeah, the backing up part is the the strange bit of it, isn't it? Very much so, as is the, uh, in many cases, you know, the blinking out that we were talking about. You know, this one simply blinked out and it didn't fly off into a direction at a high speed, but it disappeared. And it was, I, I was very, very careful to pay attention because the second it froze. I said, what is this? And then what happened happened. And then the light turned green and I proceeded. And that, that was my, my entire UFO experience. It's the first and only time I've ever seen something that qualifies as an unidentified flying object experience for me. So yes, to answer your question, that added um, significant uh, impetus to me doing the book and learning more and talking to people and finding out all this stuff and then diving into the culture of UFO. I mean, there are there are subgroups of UFO aficionados who believe that the Bible has accounts of UFO experiences. There's a chapter in the book, Was Jesus an Extraterrestrial? Yeah. And I quote, yeah, you saw that. And I quote the passages that ufologists claim are describing an alien experience. So it's it's a fascinating subject, absolutely fascinating. And um, I give these illustrated lectures based on the book all over Connecticut. And uh, I have all kinds of photos. And, and see, you know, that's another thing. There's an awful lot of photographic evidence these days, particularly that we're now in the era of the iPhone and everybody's got a phone. There are all kinds of websites that have things that seem unexplainable. You know, I did a book about crop circles with Colin Andrews, who is the world's authority on, on crop circles. He's from the UK. Yeah, uh, he, li yeah he lives here now in, in Guilford, Connecticut. But uh, studying those, he, he discovered 80% of crop formations around the world are man-made. They are explainable. Yeah. But 20% scientifically cannot be explained. So as I've done all these books, I did a book called The Weird 100. Um, you know, I did the UFO book. I, I've come to the conclusion that I don't know everything. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's it. I need to be everyone needs to be open minded that we are in empirical reality is not as cut and dried as we have always presumed it was. And quantum physics is evidence that there are stranger things. What did Shakespeare cause things that we can't understand beyond our conception? Um, so that's that's why I, I'm kind of fascinated by by all these topics. I think the thing as well is that if there is even a slight element that something might exist or something might be true, then that's enough to carry us forward, isn't it? Because you said you took all of the unexplainable cases that Project Blue Book couldn't clarify, if you like, couldn't come up with an explanation to. And then again, you whittled right. those down. Well, even if, even if 
you ended up with one case that you couldn't explain, then that one case is enough to say, is there really something going on? You know, you talk about these crazy diseases that that exist in the world, and doctors will say to you, oh, yeah, but, you know, there's a there's a one in a you know million chance that you'll ever, ever have something like that. You know what? There's somebody that's got it. And to them, being that one in a million is the biggest thing in the world because it's happening to them. It truly is, and you're absolutely right. 12,618 reported sightings were studied by Project Blue Book, and the government washed their hands on 618 of them. Um, The Project Blue Book records, which are all online, uh, they are fascinating because the government from 1947 to 1970-ish took UFO sightings seriously. And so they really put the effort into explaining. And let's face it, the overwhelming majority were easily explainable. Weather phenomena, planets, uh, weather balloons, swamp (laughs) gas. Thank you. Exactly. Um, And yet 618, they said, we have no idea what these are. And from that, 218 of them were by really, really credible people. And so that to me, as you say, even if it's just one, but this is 218, and that's clearly enough to pursue further. So of those 218 that you've discussed in your book, what's your favorite? What is the one that you're like, that's it for me? Well, you know, actually, the the vast majority of them are fascinating because they all have a commonality of behavior unknown to mankind at the time. And even now, for example, um, Sunday, July 6th, 1947, at the Fairfield Susan Air Base in California, Army Air Force Captain uh, and Mrs. James Berniston, their names are in the record. This His sighting lasted a minute, and here's how he described it. One object having no wings or tail rolled from side to side three times and then flew away very fast to the southeast. 1949, January 4th, Hickam Field, Hawaii, a U.S. Air Force pilot, Captain Paul Story, he was on the ground. He had a brief sighting, and he described one flat, white, elliptical object with a matte top circled while oscillating to the right and left and then sped away. And of these 218, they're all very similar to that. Some have lights, some hover, some fly at speeds unimaginable. Matter of fact, there's a sighting. I don't have it on hand, but there's a sighting by an Air Force pilot who claims that he saw an object fly around his jet in the air, around the, no- the nose cone of his jet. He's flying, and this, this, this craft suddenly appears and begins flying around, circling his jet as he's flying, and then it speeds off. It's funny because when you think about it, back we're talking in sort of the early 80s, the Harrier jump jet was one of the first vertical takeoff craft in the world. And if you ever see that or are near that craft, the noise it makes to just do a vertical takeoff and hover and move slightly left to right, which is what you're describing there, the noise that that gives out is absolutely incredible. 
and yet a lot of these cases, the aerial phenomena is occurring in near silence. You're absolutely right. The vast majority of these sightings by these pilots and so forth, they never report noise or any kind of chaotic din that that makes your ears ring it's always almost silent and we don't have like you just said we don't have the technology for that even now so again worth exploring and when an astronaut which many say a u.s astronaut is one of the most difficult jobs quote unquote to get the training the education the constant practicing and and training and drilling to get to be able to fly the shuttle or any kind of spacecraft is just you know they don't play games with who they hire and so for astronauts to report in fact I'll, i'll give you a couple here gordon cooper you've heard of gordon cooper astronaut gordon cooper uh he had a sighting in 1951 he he described an armada of alien spacecraft. Um, He said, yeah, we never could get close enough to pin them down, he says, but they were round in shape and very metallic looking. 1957, listen to this. In 1957, Cooper reported that a saucer-shaped craft landed at Edwards Air Force Base. The landing was filmed. It has been kept under wraps, never shown. And Cooper said it was hovering above the ground. And then it slowly came down and sat on the lake bed for a few minutes. All during this time, the motion picture cameras were filming away. All witnesses agreed it was at least the size of a vehicle that would carry normal sized people in it. Cooper saw the film as soon as it was developed. And it was, he says, it was a typical circular shaped UFO. Not too many people saw it because it took off at, here we go, quite a sharp angle and just climbed straight on out of sight. And he concluded the interview by saying, there were always strange things flying around in the air over Edwards, (laughs) which I I just love that quote. (laughs) (laughs) always strange things flying around in the air really okay what don't we know Um, (laughs) exactly elaborate please (laughs) (laughs) exactly in 1965 astronaut ed white uh he was the first american to walk in space and his partner um they were passing over hawaii in one of the gemini spacecraft when they saw a weird-looking metallic object, it had long arms sticking out of it. McDivitt took pictures with a movie camera. The pictures were never released. In December of 65, James Lovell and Frank Borman, Gemini astronauts, they saw a UFO during their second orbit. They were on a 14-day flight, which was record-breaking. Um, and Borman reported he saw an unidentified spacecraft some distance from their capsule. Gemini Control at Cape Kennedy told him that he was seeing the final stage of their own Titan booster rocket. But Borman confirmed he could see the booster rocket all right, but there was this was something completely different and not the booster rocket. And of course, it got just filed away. And then there's this. This is an actual transcript from a Gemini 7 broadcast. Astronaut Lovell, James Lovell, says bogey at 10 o'clock high. Capcom, this is Houston. Say again, 7, Gemini 7. Lovell said we have a bogey at 10 o'clock high. 
And Capcom says, Gemini 7, is that the booster or is that an actual sighting level? We have several actual sightings. Capcom, estimated distance or size, level. We also have the booster in sight. And then the communication cut off. There was no more and nothing else was released publicly. So, again, you got Gemini astronauts, Apollo astronauts, Mercury astronauts reporting seeing things that do not have an empirical real world explanation at that time. And frankly, that that to me is just, you know, what else don't we know? Like we were just saying. So do you think that the governments are hiding this stuff because they think that you know, the normal citizens aren't ready to hear about these things? Or do you think maybe they're hiding it out of their own fear because they can't explain it? Well, no, you nailed it. That's it. That's it in, in a nutshell. And they, the government, matter of fact, uh, astronaut Cooper said, I know other astronauts share my feelings and we know the government is sitting on hard evidence of UFOs. He said this in January of 1997. The government doesn't think that mankind can handle the reality of the existence of aliens. And in fact, it was the, the Orson Welles broadcast of the Mars show, the radio show. Remember when yeah. he did the radio show on Halloween and people fled? Yeah, people were really upset because they thought it was real, yeah. <laughs> they panicked. People panicked, and they fled New Jersey. The highways were jammed. They were. We were being invaded. We were being invaded by Martians. And believe it or not, I've read many interviews and reports and articles that say that when the government assessed the populace's reaction, they concluded, we can't tell them. <laughs> now, whether or not that's 100% true – I don't know. But I do know that there has been talk that it might completely change mankind for all time. And we may not be prepared for it or sophisticated enough to accept that we there are other beings. Um, and yet I, I've read interviews with people who claim to have seen bodies, alien bodies. You know who claims to have seen an alien body? Jackie Gleason. Jackie Gleason wrote in his autobiography that Richard Nixon took him to see evidence of crashed craft and alien corpses. Now, he was (laughs) of all the people that Nixon could have taken. He takes Jackie Gleason. (laughs) He he was a huge UFO buff. In fact, he called his house the mothership and his he had a library of books about UFOs and extraterrestrials and and paranormal activity that that rivaled uh, established libraries. So he was a really he was really involved with it, and he claims that that he actually witnessed that. So, you know, will we ever know? We can't. We don't know if we'll ever know. But there's all this stuff that trickles out from people with credibility, and then there's all this photographic evidence. The point is there's something going on in the skies, something. And the point is, will we ever reach a point where a government, world governments will commit to a serious explanation? Project Blue Book was, uh, I was proud (laughs) that the American government said, you know something, we're getting 
thousands of reports from people that they're seeing these these flying objects in the sky. Uh, we have to look into it. And as you indicated, yes, the bulk of them were explained. But even if, like you say, even if there was one that literally had no logical explanation, it's worth exploring. <laughs> well, I know that me personally, I'm a pretty level-headed person, usually pretty calm. But I can honestly say if if I ever did have uh, – if I was ever watching TV even and they came on the news and said, yes, this is this is real, I know that I would be terrified. I don't know how I would react to You'd that. You'd be terrified, but – Hopefully, you'd have a bit of common sense. I mean, going back to that broadcast that came out where everyone freaked out, it makes you wonder, really, and we're really going down a conspiracy sort of rabbit hole now, but it makes you wonder, really, whether that was actually planned. A test. <laughs> yeah. Let's see how the public are going to react. You know, that's a good question, but I kind of doubt it because I don't think Orson Welles and his War of the Worlds novel, I don't think he would have willingly agreed to be a patsy. Right. True, yeah, as a, true. As, as a test. He was a serious writer, director. I, if, he, if they came to him and said, here's what we want to do to see about the people's response, I, I think he would have told them to, you know, stuff it. Um but who knows? You're, that is a possibility. You're absolutely right. I mean, high profile people have come out publicly as having sightings. You know, President Jimmy Carter, yeah. he, he actually filed a report January 6, 1969. He was um, governor of Georgia at the time, and he and several witnesses with him saw a UFO. He said it was huge. It changed colors uh, and then vanished. I have the report in the book. His handwritten UFO report, and that's Jimmy Carter. Again, he was he wasn't president, but he was the governor. This is a credible person. And then he Reagan. did become president, didn't he? So it was like yes, he, the, he yes, he did. Yeah, people exactly. didn't go. He's a nut. Forget him. <laughs> and Ronald Reagan saw a UFO when he was flying. He ordered the pilot to follow it, and then came down and reported it, and kind of laughed it off and said. Well, you know, there's strange things up there. Who knows what we saw and kind of tried to blow it off. But it was definite. It was a definite experience. It qualified as a UFO experience. David Bowie, <laughs> when he was growing up, he actually saw UFOs in England so frequently that he published a magazine about his sightings. Uh, I mean, John Lennon, uh, he wrote a song about there's UFOs over New York. Um, he saw an oval shaped object that started flying from left to right. Nixon, President Nixon was was fully aware, as I mentioned, of the crash and retrieval of spacecraft and bodies. And um, they, he had the he ordered them stored at Homestead Air Force Base in Florida. So these are not people that you see on a corner, you know, raving and ranting with signs on. Mm. These are credible, established, reputable people reporting something they could not explain. So I've always given great credence to the people who take this as seriously enough to, I saw this and here's, here's what I saw. I'm not afraid to report it. 
take it as you as you see fit. As someone who's obviously done a lot of research into this, what do you think? And I use the word or the term UFO community very loosely when I say this, okay? But what do you think the whole sort of subject as a whole needs to actually move this forward and get some real scientific credible investigation into what what do you think it needs i don't think it'll ever happen because two reasons it costs money which we you know governments are loath to spend on what i you know people call woo woo projects you know in fact some governments won't even accept scientific evidence of climate change <laughs> yeah to hear that there's funding a billion dollar project to research UFOs, it just isn't going to happen. Plus, there very well may, may be that underlying fear that the populace would freak out. Maybe maybe there are already are things that are being done that people just aren't aware of. There's a lot of money in the government just, that just sort of goes, well, disappears. whatever, that's yeah. for this or that. And We've never heard of it. Black budgets, yeah. budgets that we know exist, but the amounts and what is the, it's spent on is never revealed. So, yeah, I mean, it would be quite something if at some point we discovered that there was a consortium of scientific groups from all countries all over the world that have been very quietly looking into this. And then someday a report is issued. It, it would be incredible because I do think there is some type of phenomenon, otherworldly phenomenon going on. But again, it may very well be 20 percent, you know, the 20 percent figure, like when Colin discovered in his research about crop circles, you know, 80% of it is is nothing. It's man-made. It's hoaxed. But there are 20, there's 20% of it that scientifically cannot be explained. It wouldn't surprise me if at some point we discover that 80%, well, what's the what's the, the the ratio with the Project Blue Book? And that ended in 1970. You know, 618 divided by 12,618. What is that? 1%, 2%, 4%? So it might even be lower than 20%. But my thinking is that the vast majority might ultimately pan out as being, you know, misinterpretations similar to the Project Blue Book results. But there will always be those sightings that scientifically cannot be explained. What the ratio is, we'll never know, I guess, unless, you know, the money is put into it. Or, like you indicated, you know, maybe one of the black budgets projects is uh, an exploration of, of UFO sightings because one of the things I showed during my talk is a map of the United States with the frequency of UFO sightings in red and pink, you know, dark red is where there are a lot. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. there, you know, it gets low, lighter and lighter. And the whole country is completely covered. I mean, the, the, the West Coast from the Midwest to California is all totally dark red. My home state of Connecticut is dark red. Alaska is dark red and then the lighter red throughout the Midwest and up into New England. But the bulk of New England, Vermont, New Hampshire and Maine, bright red. And these are all sightings that people have reported. 
and sometimes photographed. So, you know, this is not something just random. It seems as though, you know, there, it's been going on for, for a long time. People are conscious of it and are paying attention. And we have stats on, on what people are seeing. And yet we don't have real explanations. So uh, I'm hoping it becomes something. Well, you know, with the world and the state it's in, like you say, where's the money yeah. to, to spend on projects like that? Like we said, even if there is one case, it's still a defense concern, isn't it? It totally is. And, and the thing is, too, there is evidence we have concrete evidence. We have physical evidence, medical records, radar, and photographs. And each category, um, the physical traces, compressed vegetation, broken tree branches. Sometimes soil samples are taken from an area where a UFO has been sighted. And it's, it's shown through laboratory analysis to have undergone massive heating or unbelievable chemical changes that aren't true of the control sample. I mean, this is science. This is, this is something that – explain to me. If this soil – okay, I saw a UFO over there. Okay, let's test the soil. And the soil is different scientifically from the other soil. And that's what happened when Colin was researching his crop circle stuff. The crops in the circles themselves looked as though they'd been put in a microwave. They weren't broken. The hoax crop circles, the, the shafts of the crops were broken in half. And the new crops that are growing through are genetically altered as well. Exactly right. So, and the ones that were there that are believed to be genuine, the elbows of the shafts of the wheat or the corn are swollen like they had been put in a microwave, which is not common. No. <laughs> for the ones that are made by guys out in a field with a board and a rope and a and a laser measurer, you know. So again, there is science behind a lot of this but you know the priorities are are as they are in this world and so who knows but for those of us who research this stuff and read about it and talk to people it's it's a fascinating aspect of human culture and human existence that i my my personal hope is someday we really find out we really get some real answers as to not only what's going on, but what governments have hidden, what they know. It's, it would be fascinating. And I personally could handle it. I mean, I believe that we can't be alone. The universe is too big. And there's just logic alone would yeah. tell us that there are habitable planets elsewhere. So who knows? Um, there's no real way of knowing right now, but it's an interesting topic, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it, it yeah. definitely is. And, and moving from the sort of sightings that we we're talking about, your book even goes deeper into alien abductions and medical procedures and stuff that, that might have been carried out in those abduction scenarios. I have personally spoken to people who claim to have been abductees. And John Mack... Dr. John Mack, a Harvard professor, wrote a book in which he interviewed as many abductees as he could, as were willing to speak to him. And, you know, as in the UFO and the crop circle phenomenon, 70 percent, 80 percent of people who said they were abducted were probably undergoing some type of psychiatric or psychological break or could be delusional. It could have been hallucination. But then 
there are those, that small group of people who have evidence on their bodies or in their bodies, implants, that cannot be explained. You know, I always kind of, when people say, oh, that's ridiculous, that, that can't be possible, I always fall back on the explanation for near-death experiences. People say, oh, it's just the brain going through these gymnastics and it's not really, uh, they're, they're not actually dead. And so what they're seeing in these near-death experiences isn't real. And I would say, well, then how can a person who is lying on an operating table and is dead medically can report what the label says on the light above the table when they are brought back and they can read off the name of the lamp and the serial number as though their soul had flown to the ceiling, isn't it? Give me an explanation how that can be possible. And of course, you can't other than the fact that they somehow disconnected, flew up, looked down and then was brought back. And I think that in a lot of situations regarding paranormal phenomena, we have these incidents that are clearly true because the easiest way to test if the, if the guy who had the near-death experience actually saw the, la the, the label is to read the label. Exactly. And if the label matches what he says – then come up with an explanation. Explain to me how he could see what's on the back of the lamp above the operating table. And the literature is replete with people having these types of experiences of people reporting what's said in the operating room when there's no brain activity and no pulse. How is that possible? And I think that, you know, maybe – 75%, 80% will someday be able to be explained, but there's always that core group of, of events and experiences that don't have an explanation. Well, unless, uh, unless there's people where um, the window or light installers <laughs> would be the first thing. Okay, you didn't, you didn't help build this, did you? No, okay. <laughs> Oh, yeah, exactly. Some people <laughs> would say, oh, you worked in the factory where yeah. that lamp was manufactured. And come on, you memorized the serial number. And I mean, you know, just ludicrous grasping at straws to try and get away from the possible supernatural or paranormal explanation. It is amazing um, how much people will do that, though. They will just try. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, and, and in the end, a lot of their sort of theories and explanations are more ridiculous than what the person was saying in the first place. Absolutely right. And there is concrete evidence of powers of the mind, telekinesis and all, all kinds of savant. Matter of fact, I'm working on a book called Savants. And, it, you know, like Rain Man, yep. I'm looking at all of the many, many of the people who have manifested savant-like abilities throughout their lives. And I'm not saying that that's supernatural. I'm saying that the fact that a guy who has an IQ of 80 can be flown over Tokyo in a helicopter, come back, and then draw the entire city of Tokyo on a giant wall from his memory in 30 minutes, to me, that indicates what the human brain's potential yeah. is. If his brain can do it, 
then perhaps that may be something to aspire to and that his situation, whether it's autism or low IQ or whatever, just kind of rewires the brain so that ultimately they have, quote unquote, superpowers. I mean, you know, the, the blind guy who has never seen a sheet of music who can play Mozart after hearing it once. How is that possible? Clearly, his brain can do it. So the thing is, I think it's a it's a hodgepodge. It's a big kind of menage of all of these abilities and traits and and experiences, and and it crosses from paranormal to just supernormal. And I have found that you know, keeping an open mind because you know the fact that, and in fact, you know, it's funny you mentioned Stephen King. His first book, Carrie was about mm-hmm. a young girl who had telekinetic ability. He's been uh, interested in what he calls wild talents. That's how he describes people who, and in Firestarter, you know, Charlie can start fires with her mind, you know. That was an um, amazing of, book, I thought. Very, you like very that scary. Book, yeah. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. And he introduced the shop this clandestine kind of CIA-like agency. And, oh, it's a great spy thriller as well as a supernatural thriller. So, you know, wild talents are real. There is evidence they exist. So clearly, I think we have an enormous capacity that isn't really tapped all the time. And by the way, that we only use 10% of our brain thing, that's not true. We use 100% of our brain, but we don't really employ it at a hundred percent. We can, yeah, right. I mean, you know, it's not, it's much more, if we only use 10% of our brain, we would all be bedridden on oxygen. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. there's, <laughs> yeah. you know, the fact that, you know, we use the entire brain, but we have a bill and these savants that I've been researching, what they can do to me is just mind-boggling especially this matter of fact the scene in rain man where the toothpick the, box yeah. falls or and he glances at it and he knows how many are there how is that done how can two eyes look at a pile of toothpicks and count them in his brain accurately in a second how is that possible it's a super talent so maybe all brains can do that but we need training or I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know how to we would activate something like that. But the fact that they can do it, it, it to me, is evidence of, of the ability that we're all capable of. So speaking of Stephen King, there's a book that you've written about him as well that's getting ready to come out or has it already come out? Uh, October 30th, 10 days from today. It's called Stephen King, American Master. It's my sixth book about King. Uh, the others are the complete Stephen King encyclopedia, two King quiz books, the lost work of Stephen King and the essential Stephen King. This one, Stephen King, American Master, kind of looks at King at 70. Part one is a collection of interviews and essays by world-renowned King authorities. And part two is a bullet-pointed look at everything he's written, including unpublished stuff, uncollected stuff, childhood writings, college writings. And it's so, I've kind of like done a book that is both a reading and a browsing book. So if you're reading short story collection, Bizarre of Bad Dreams, and you come, you read a story, Obits, for example, and you're just moved by, oh my God, that was a great story. 
go to my book, look up old bits, and I'll have some trivia and some information about the story and writing about it. And I do that for everything he's written. The subtitle is A Creepy Corpus of Facts About Stephen King and His Work. But Stephen King, American Master is the main title. It's doing really well on Amazon in pre-orders. We just heard we were probably going to do an audio book. So now it's available. It'll be available in Kindle, trade paperback, audio, and we're doing a limited edition of the book in hardcover, slipcase, signed and numbered by all of the contributors that'll be out in early 2019. And we had the artist Glenn Chadbourne do a, a magnificent wraparound cover for, for the limited edition, which we're all really excited about. I had Stephen Bissett do a giant foldout painting for the encyclopedia of a, of a body on a table because the book was originally called The Shape Under the Sheet, which is a reference to a metaphor King used in the introduction to Night Shift where he says, you know, what does the horror writer do? He takes you in a room and he shows you the shape under the sheet. And the shape under the sheet is your own dead body. <laughs> and I always, I, yeah, I kind of commandeered that that phrase for the uh, encyclopedia. And we did this uh, beautiful fold out painting. And Stephen Bissett is the guy who uh, created Swamp Thing. Yeah. So we were really happy to get him for that. And now we got Glenn Chadbourne, who's just a leading horror fantasy sci-fi artist. So yeah, so we're doing the limited edition probably around the first of the year. We have to get the signature sheets around to 14 people to sign and then get back to the printer. So it takes longer when we do these limiteds. I wouldn't mind having one of those. We'll be looking out for that one. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, the Overlook Connection Press, which actually StephenKingCatalog.com, he, ch he uh, changed his website name, but the Overlook Connection is a Stephen King superstore that has been in business since 1980, early 80s. And they, uh, they, he branched out, the owner, Dave Hinchberger, he branched out into doing limited editions. And he's done a bunch of them. He did the limited of my King Encyclopedia, which is absolutely magnificent. Big slip case and it's beautiful. So, yeah, just go to StephenKingCatalog.com and, and he'll show it to you and, you know, take it from there. And I mean, I've been a fan since 1986 when I started the encyclopedia, which took five years to write. And then I moved on into the other stuff. And I've done so many other books in addition to the King stuff, but I've always come back to King. I mean, uh, although interestingly, this book is the first book I've written about King in 17 years. My last book was The Essential Stephen King, where I ranked his top 100 works. And that came out in 2001. And I had I had been so busy with other books that and I didn't really have an idea as to how to look at his work. The lost work of King is very specific. The encyclopedia is very specific. The essential has a very particular focus. And I said, well, you know, those are enough. But then I came up with this idea and I said, you know, it's time because King, like McCartney, is multi-generational. Yeah. And I'm hearing from young people 
you know, teens who are suddenly re- reading King for the first time and wanting to know more about his work. And, and then you got the old timers like me who have been with King since his first book was published. So the time is right, I think, to for another kind of expansive look at King, his body of work, because personally, I think he's the Twain, Dickens, and Poe of our time, and then his work will still be being read 50 years from now, the best of his work, just as Twain and Dickens' stuff is. Yeah, I agree um, with you on that. He, he, won the, he got the National Medal of Art from President Obama. He won the National Book Award. I mean, just horror writers don't win those kinds of literary awards. He's not going to be winning anything from Trump, is he? No, <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, uh, so he's been uh, he's been a subject of of interest for me for many many years. Yes, thank you for asking about. It. Is it true that you've not met him? I have not met him. There was I've spoken to him on the phone very briefly, and there was one time that I was to meet him at a book exposition in New York City many years ago when he was still going. To, to book seminars and expositions. Now he can't because he's just completely swarmed. I mean, it's yeah. impossible. Thing can't function if King shows up. But back then he was going to be at the New York one. And I got violently carsick on the way there and had to turn around. That's um, terrible. <laughs> it, it, and the reason is because I actually hired a car. I didn't want to drive and I didn't want to take a train. So I actually hired a car because uh, I'd be meeting with publishers and I wanted to stay kind of focused and fresh. And, and it turns out the limo driver was my child, my high school classmate. Wow. And yeah. And the air conditioning didn't work. And he wanted me to sit facing him so we could talk. And the combination of those factors literally destroyed me. My equilibrium went out the window. And so I was not able to get into New York to meet him. And since then, he and I have never been in the same place at the same time. (laughs) So it's it's an odd kind of thing. But I was with his son, Owen, at one of his book signings and I correspond with them. And so, you know, it's it's uh, it's amazing what the Internet and the phone and, and overnight express can how can keep people together today, especially Facebook. You know, everything is uh, everybody's connected. Yeah, definitely. Smaller world now. It truly is. Yes, ma'am. Excellent. Well, where can people find more about you and your work and your books? Have you got a, a website that people can go to? I am stevenspignessi.com. Uh, exactly my name. So yes, they can go to my website and there I have my complete bibliography. I post essays from now on, now and then I put up uh, all my illustrated lecture dates. Uh, there's photos and stuff. And, uh, and also I'm on Facebook as, as Steven Spignetti. So if anyone wants to friend me, uh, who's interested in the stuff I write about, would love to meet them. And people should go and check out your site because you have written some really interesting books. Uh, it's such a wide spectrum from yeah. We were looking you know, at Titanic and the Beatles, <laughs> greatest disasters uh, of all yeah. time, and UFOs, and it's just loads. Brilliant. 
I've done two Titanic books. In fact, you, you're familiar with the dummies books for dummies, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. word for dummies. I've written four of them. And my most recent one was Titanic for dummies. And, you know, I wrote full time for 25 years and I actually made a living at it. I would do two, three books a year. I can turn out product very quickly. But then around 2007, publishing kind of tightened up in the States the way housing was tightening up Mm -hmm. and I couldn't make a living at it anymore. So I got in touch with the chair of the English department at University of New Haven, my alma mater. I said, I'm available. And I was hired that semester, uh, then promoted to practitioner in residence the following semester. And I taught composition and literature for 10 years and then retired last August. And now I'm back to writing full time again. But what's interesting about that and Titanic is that in the spring 2012 semester, which was the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, I proposed a course, The Literature and Legacy of the Titanic, and they approved it, a full three-credit semester-long course. And the best part is my book, Titanic for Dummies, was the course text and the school bought the students oh, my wow. book. <laughs> I so How wish I could have taken have a course you- like that. <laughs> How often have you heard of a university paying for a student's books? But they did. They they felt and and the the course was covered in the media and it filled up immediately and it was incredible. It was I think one of the first college level courses on the history of the Titanic ever taught. And I used Titanic for Dummies as my course text. And then I handed them out on day one and then signed them all on the last day of the semester, which was (laughs) big fun. It was just great. So yeah, I've, I've written a very eclectic bibliography and I'll tell you a secret. Part of it of my bibliography are books that were offered to me. You know, I used to tell my students and and especially writing students, what a lot of people don't know is that every publisher has a list, books looking for writers because they have idea meetings, you know, once a week, every two weeks. And they come up with, you know, we should do a book about Robin Williams. Who can we get to write it? They actually ask that question. And if you're if you've been working with publishers and you have a track record of dependability, very often they'll go to your agent and say, hey, listen, you know, would would Steve be interested in doing a book about Robin Wood? And and frankly, I said yes to everything because I was doing it as a living. <laughs> so I would take on projects. And so I can't take credit for the ideas for all of the books. A lot of them were were offered to me by publishers, but I loved the research. I, I do that a lot. And so I just kind of zoned in on the on the topic and, and wrote the book that uh, that they wanted. So it's been it's been big fun. Yeah. Well, we've really, really enjoyed speaking to you. We appreciate you, you spending the time with us. It has been an absolute joy speaking to you because we've covered so many topics in such a short time. We would like to say right now that we definitely want to have you back if we can when you release that Savant book, because that is definitely something that's going to interest us and I'm sure our listeners as well. Absolutely. Uh, Just get in touch and we'll go from there. I would love to. This is great. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you very much again for spending time with us. We're looking forward to reading the books. That, by the way, listeners, the big book of UFO facts, figures and truth is available for pre-order at the moment. The the Kindle version of it is available for pre-order now on Amazon as well. Just keep your eye out for that one. Yes, it is. Thank you.
In fact, I have a final. I have a final edit to do, <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> then it goes to the printer. So yeah, I, I, I will get back to work on it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate you spending your time with us. Thanks. Good to talk to you. I'm definitely getting that big book of UFO facts, figures, and truth. Yeah, I think it'd be pretty good. Well, all of the articles that are in there as well that you was talking about, and the interviews and stuff with astronauts and all of those people that are in the know uh, there's got to be some facts in there that certainly i don't know i'm i'm no authority on that kind of thing and not, i could definitely learn something i think well the project blue book why yeah. don't you because we didn't get to do that explain to people who may not have a clue what that is what it is well project blue book to my understanding i don't know all about it but project blue book was the government investigation into ufos Oh, right, okay, so there wasn't actually a book. No, no, Project Blue Book was the like code name for their... Are you seriously <laughs> shitting me? Project Blue Book was the name of the the actual project, the... the it was I the code it. name. I get yeah. it, okay? Okay, right, I'm right. not blonde. Yeah, I, I should really. be. I've got the genes somewhere, can you tell? <laughs> You've got the genes? Well, my mother was blonde, so well, somewhere I got a gene. Yeah. I thought the stuff about Stephen King was awesome, too. I mean, I'm really glad that we got to speak to him and that we talked all about his new book, but I cannot wait to get my hands on the Stephen King book. Yeah, well, what our listeners don't know is that we're recording this after we did the interview, and when we actually said goodbye and you heard it cut, we actually paused the recording then and then had another chat for about 15, 20 minutes with Stephen and we're actually going to have him back on the show where he's going to talk to us a little bit more later on about the Stephen King stuff. And he had some really funny anecdotes that anyone who's a fan of Stephen King are going to find interesting. Yeah, so neener, 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 you didn't get to hear it all. That means you're going to have to come back and listen to a future podcast. But until then, please do make sure that you like and share our podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter if you can. But until then, stay, stay weird, weird, wacky, and, and wonderful. wonderful. Bye. <laughs> we needed a catchphrase. <laughs> See you guys. <laughs>